out into the cold, cold world. Welcome to Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure proudly produced by clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. And today we have a very special treat for you as Brother John Mills, who recently received his district minister's license, is going to be bringing us a message out of Genesis 3. And with that, I'm going to hand it over to Brother John. Thank you. It is good to be here this morning, and I appreciate this opportunity to speak with you. I have entitled this sermon, Out into the Cold, Cold World, Adam and Eve Leave the Garden. My text comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. As I begin this morning, I want to tell you a story called The Monkey's Paw. This was a short story that I taught a lot in English classes in high school. But uh, the story begins with a husband and a wife, and they are at home with their grown son. And this is a family that enjoys one another. You can tell there's a lot of love between them. They are expecting a visit from an old friend. And this is a soldier who has recently retired from the British Army after spending years as an officer in India. They spend the evening together, and he tells them tales of his military days. He finishes by pulling out a mummified paw from a monkey. And he tells them this is a special souvenir from his days in India. This uh, monkey's paw is actually magic. It has the ability to grant three wishes to the man who possesses it. But then he does something surprising. He throws the paw into the fire and says he wishes it would just burn up. The husband, however, can't resist. He pulls the monkey's paw out of the fire, and later, during the night, he uses the paw to wish for $200. He needs enough money to pay off the loan on their house. Now, the family doesn't really expect anything from this wish, and so they go about their normal routine. But the next day, while they're waiting for their son to return from work, instead they get a visit from several lawyers. They give them the bad news. Their son has been killed in an accident at work. But then they present them with a sum of money to pay for their son's death. And the sum of money is $200, the exact amount they wished for. So the husband and the wife are devastated. They bury their son, and the next night they're back home, but this time without their son. Then the wife realizes they still have two more wishes. They can wish their son back to life again. The husband begs her not to because he realizes why the soldier wanted to get rid of the monkey's paw in the first place. The monkey's paw will grant you your wish, but it'll do it in a way that you don't expect. The wife insists, however, on wishing the son back to life. They go to bed, and then during the night, they hear something monstrous trying to get into the cabin. And the husband realizes the son has come back from the dead, but it's not in a way that anybody wants. 
So from this story, we learned the idea that many times we get what we want, but it's not what we intended it to be. The Chinese had three ancient curses. May you live in interesting times. May you be recognized by people in high places. And may you get what you wish for. You know, these don't necessarily sound like curses, but a lot of times when we get what we wish for, we end up regretting it. In our scripture today, Adam and Eve found themselves in just such a situation. You remember the story. The serpent had tempted Eve, assured Eve that eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would not result in death, but would make her like God. Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, but when they got what they wanted, the knowledge of good and evil, they found it wasn't what they expected it to be. Now they find themselves banished from the garden. A cherubim is placed outside with a flaming sword to make sure they're unable to eat from the tree of life and live forever. Usually when we see this, we think about the banishment from the garden as further punishment for their sins. Because of their disobedience, God is cutting them off from the garden. God is acting out of anger to punish them. However, I don't think this is how we should interpret this text. God is not acting out of anger. Instead, God is acting in kindness and mercy to protect Adam and Eve. God knew that if left on their own, Adam and Eve would never be able to resist the lure of the tree of life. They would do their best to remove the curse of physical death and live forever by eating from the tree. But by doing so, they would be condemning themselves to an eternity without God, to live forever physically, but without any hope of being reconciled to God and having spiritual life. Adam and Eve didn't know it, but God already had a plan of redemption in place, a plan to send His Son, Jesus Christ. With no physical death, this would be impossible. Once again, Adam and Eve would have gotten the physical life they wished for, but they would have regretted it for eternity. So God, in His mercy, sets out to protect Adam and Eve from their own weakness. He removes them from the garden and puts the flaming sword in place to make sure they can't eat from the tree of life. As we look at today's message, I want to bring out two main points. First, this uh, section of Scripture teaches us that we don't know what's best for us. When we take upon ourselves the authority to decide right and wrong, we always end up ruining things because we can't be trusted to know what's best. We get what we want, but then we find out it isn't what we expected. The second point is, the Scripture teaches us we can trust God to lead us, to guide us in what is best, to always be looking out for our best interest. God's love and mercy means that He always directs us in the right way, that when He sets up right and wrong, it's for our benefit that we always prosper when we submit to His authority. So let's take a closer look at these two points. God gives us specific directions on how to live, on actions to take and actions to avoid. These are given in His written Word, the Bible, and through the living Word, the Holy Spirit. The takeaway from this episode is, just like Adam and Eve, we can't be trusted to decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong. 
when we substitute our judgment for God's commands, we end up in trouble. The scripture today begins with God saying, Man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. What God was saying was obviously Adam and Eve didn't develop God-like powers. Instead, they found themselves cursed to a life of physical toil and early death. Satan had performed a classic con, that of bait and switch. He had promised them one thing and then delivered something else. Adam and Eve thought they would become like God in having God's wisdom and power, but this wasn't the case. They became like God only in they took upon themselves the authority of deciding right and wrong. This was something that only God had the right to decide. By taking this authority for themselves, Adam and Eve were acting like God, but without God's ability and wisdom. They took upon themselves the freedom to choose right and wrong, but they didn't have the capability of exercising the responsibility that came along with it. So, in a sense, the serpent did speak the truth. They did become like God, but it wasn't in the way they expected it to be. Adam and Eve found themselves in the same place as the husband in the monkey's paw. Their wish was granted, but with a twist. And this is really the essence of all sin. God has given us specific commands. Do this, don't do this. However, Satan convinces us that we'll be better off if we choose what to do, that we can make our own determination of what is best for us. But just as in the original sin, we never get away with it. Sin is always destructive. We never get the results from our disobedience that we think we will. Now Adam and Eve find themselves in a similar situation. Faced with the temptation to eat from the tree of life and to live forever, they will never be able to resist. You can hear Satan tempting them. This is the way to get back what you've lost. This is the way to undo the curse. You can be back to where you were and avoid physical death. Who wouldn't find this desirable? But like all of Satan's temptations, there were ramifications to this that Adam and Eve could never possibly know. Like Adam and Eve, we can't trust our own instincts. When Satan comes to us, his temptations always seem attractive. He whispers into our ear, we begin to think, does it really make sense that God has said not to do this? In this case, it'll be okay. My way will work out better in the end. And so we substitute our judgment for God's command. The question becomes, why can't we trust our own reasoning when it comes to deciding what is best for us? Our goal in this life is to have the best life possible, to enjoy life to the full. And there's nothing wrong with this. This is God's goal for us as well. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So if we want the best possible lives, and God wants this as well, why can't we trust our own instincts when it comes to deciding what kind of life would be the best? First, as humans, we have a very limited perspective. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now we know our perceptions can be off. 
we've seen situations where two people look at the exact same situation and come up with entirely different reactions to it. So we know that our perception of reality may not be accurate. What God is telling us, our perception is always limited in a crucial way. There is no way that we can have the same understanding and perspective that God has. This limited perspective shows itself in distinct ways. For example, we always put the highest priority on our existence in this physical world. We always assume it's better to live than to die, that death is the ultimate evil. We automatically assume that a person who lives to age 80 has a better life than a person who lives to only 50. We believe a person who dies at age 30 has obviously been cheated. But the reality is, this physical life is only a tiny part of our existence. We were created to be eternal creatures, and our real lives will continue long after this physical life is stopped. But when we are trying to decide what is best for us, we automatically opt to go with what will make the most of this physical life. We can also see our limited perspective in how we look at pain and suffering. In our opinion, we see pain as something to be avoided at all costs. We automatically assume that it's best to reduce pain as much as possible, to get rid of it entirely if we can. In our limited perspective, a pain-free existence is always a plus. But in fact, there are people in this world who live without pain, but it's not the advantage that it seems. These people suffer from the disease of leprosy. Leprosy destroys nerve cells. Those who have it lose their sense of pain. But instead of this being a blessing, it's a curse. Because they can't feel pain, they end up hurting themselves without realizing it, losing fingers and toes as a result. For example, a person with a normal pain sensitivity would be in horrible pain if they got something in their eye. They immediately would stop what they're doing and flush out their eye to get rid of whatever is causing the pain. But a person with leprosy may not feel the pain at all. The object in their eye remains there, scratching the eye, doing incredible damage, but the person feels nothing and doesn't realize it until the eye is damaged beyond use. When we decide what's best for us, our limited perspective says, Avoid the immediate pain at all cost, but we end up with long-term damage that we could have avoided if we had trusted God's judgment. Besides our flawed perceptions, there's one more huge reason why we can't trust ourselves to determine right and wrong, and that is we have an enemy who's actively seeking to destroy us. The Bible makes it clear that we are engaged in spiritual warfare with Satan acting as a prowling lion, looking for someone to devour. Satan always seeks to destroy. It's his main reason for existence. Satan uses weapons of lies and deceptions against us. John 8:44 tells us Satan doesn't hold to the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, but he's always practicing this bait-and-switch, promising us one thing, delivering something else entirely. So we can't be trusted to follow our own judgment because 
we are unable to resist the lies and the deception of Satan on our own. So, in this text, we get bad news. There's no way that we can make good decisions, valid decisions about what is right and wrong on our own. We are doomed to fail. Because of the built-in flaws in our human nature, because of our fallen perspective, because we have an enemy that's seeking our destruction, we can never get this right, and we suffer the consequences. But there's good news. We're not left to make decisions about right and wrong on our own. God has given very specific instructions and guidelines on what we should and shouldn't do. He's provided us with an owner's manual, how to live the best possible life, so that everything we need to make good decisions and avoid the traps of the enemy is provided to us. God has provided us with His written Word, and He provides His Spirit to interpret the Word for us. Now, in this lesson today, we've learned that we can't trust ourselves to decide what's right and wrong. But the second main point that we realize is, even though we can't trust ourselves, we can trust God. When God provides instructions for living, whether it's telling us to do a specific thing or avoid doing a specific thing, these are always for our good. God is always acting in our best interest. His love prevents Him from acting in any other way. When we look at the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, up until today's part of the story, everything has been going along as we expect it to. Think of what has happened. Adam and Eve have been given the incredible Garden of Eden, a paradise on earth. They've taken everything God has given them, and then they've refused to obey the one requirement that He placed on them. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The result is the curse. The curse on Adam, the curse on Eve, the curse on the earth itself. This is what we expect. If anyone deserves punishment, it's Adam and Eve. But now the story takes an unexpected turn. Today's scripture begins with God making garments of skin to cover Adam and Eve. You remember from last week, Adam and Eve had tried to make their own garments. They had sewed fig leaves together, but this was obviously inadequate. They needed something more substantial to protect them. So God provided them with new clothing made from animal skins. We find something unusual here. Instead of wrath and judgment, we find God showing compassion and mercy. After all, Adam and Eve had done everything to deserve His wrath, but we find the kindness of God here. We would expect God to leave them on their own, but instead God sees their need, takes pity on them, and extends His hand to help. When the story continues, we find Adam and Eve banished from the garden with a cherubim and a flaming sword put in their path to prevent their return. When we hear this, we normally think, okay, now this story is returning to familiar ground. Adam and Eve are getting what's coming to them. They've betrayed God, and now God is enacting His judgment. The cherubim and the sword show God's divine anger. But when we read the story in this way, I think we miss the whole point. This is not a demonstration of God's justice and judgment. It's another visible demonstration of God's kindness. God is not punishing Adam and Eve. He is protecting them. 
The flaming sword is not there to make sure they're punished. It's there to make sure they're protected. God said man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to eat of the tree of life and then live forever. God knew that Adam and Eve, if left to their own devices, they would do everything in their power to eat from the tree of life and to gain immortality for themselves. From their perspective, it made perfect sense. One of the main effects of their sin was the curse of physical death, to return to the dust that they were made of. But if they could live forever by eating from the tree of life, this part of the curse would be cut out. But God knew what Adam and Eve didn't know, that it was the physical consequences of their sin that, was the, that weren't that it wasn't the physical consequences that were the real problem. It was the sin itself. The sin was what needed to be dealt with. The cursed ground, the painful toil, living by the sweat of your brow, physical death, these were all just symptoms. The true disease was the sin, the disobedience that had separated them from God, the fact that they were now dead in their trespasses and sins, and they needed a Savior. God knew living forever in this physical body without salvation, without spiritual life, would be truly horrific. Stephen Cole writes, Once sin had entered, to live forever would have been hell on earth. When we hear this, we tend to think, What? Why would this be? How could living forever be a problem? But Cole is making a very important point. The tree of life would grant physical life but it would do nothing to give spiritual life. If Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of life, they would be just as dead spiritually. In fact, instead of being better off, they would be worse off. Because God's plan of salvation called for the physical death of Christ on the cross, without death there could be no atoning sacrifice. Without physical death there would be no hope of spiritual life. By eating from the tree, Adam and Eve would have condemned themselves to an eternity without God. Yes, they would have had physical life, but the life they really needed, the life in Christ, would have been denied to them for eternity. If Satan had managed to get Adam and Eve to take of the tree of life, he would have succeeded at the greatest bait and switch of all time. Adam and Eve would have gained life, but not the life they wanted or that they desperately needed. So when God placed the cherubim, the flaming sword, between Adam and Eve and the tree of life, it wasn't to show his displeasure. It was the greatest proof or evidence of his mercy, the incredible fact that in everything God does, he's looking out for our best interest. For you see, God had a plan. He wasn't going to leave Adam and Eve in their dead state. He was going to put in plan a place of redemption. This would provide resurrection for both the physical and the spiritual body. Now, this is not the last that we hear about the tree of life. The tree of life shows up again in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. John is shown that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and in this new heaven there will be the river of life, and beside it we find again the tree of life. God has a plan of redemption in place that Adam and Eve knew nothing about. Even before the creation, before they had committed their first sin, 
God had put his own plan in place to restore them. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Satan always tells us God's laws and commands are a burden. God isn't looking out for us. We have to look out for our own best interest. But as we see in our text today, we can always trust God to work for our best interest. The Bible tells us that at his very core, God is love. Now, we get all kinds of weird ideas about love, about what it means to love. But the true essence of love means I have your best interest in mind, that I always do what's best for you, no matter whether it means sacrifices to me or not. John 3.16 sums it up, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. God sacrificed himself to benefit us. Christ bled and died to redeem us. Because God is love, he will never do anything that isn't in our best interest. He never does anything to harm, but only to bless and to prosper. God always has our best interest in mind. In today's scripture, we find Adam and Eve forced to leave the garden with its tree of life. They are prevented from returning. Their path is barred by a cherubim and a flaming sword. And from this, we saw two important points. We can't be trusted to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, but we can trust God to always be looking out for our best interest. Think of the difference between a sign that says, keep off the grass, and a sign that says, don't drink the water. Why is the first sign there? The command to keep off the grass is not to protect you, it's to protect the grass. It doesn't do anything for you except restrict what you can do. It keeps you from enjoying a fully nice lawn. But the second type of sign, don't drink the water, is entirely different. It's a warning. It's clearly placed there for your benefit. If you drink the water, you don't hurt the water at all. Instead, the only one you hurt is yourself. We tend to look at the commands that God gives us as keep off the grass signs. We feel that they are there to restrict what we can do to keep us from enjoying ourselves as we want to. In reality, God's commands are more like don't drink the water. They are there to prevent us from poisoning our lives with sin. The first books of the Bible are known as the Torah. They are the commands and regulations that God gave to the Israelites. And we usually refer to the Torah by the Greek translation of law. But in the Hebrew, Torah is translated better as instruction. And this gives us more of the intent of God when he gave these commands. God's laws were not arbitrary restrictions. They weren't given just to see if the Israelites would obey. They were intended as a user's guide, an owner's manual, so to speak. When we buy a new device, a laptop, a phone, it comes with a manual, a set of instructions that tell us how to use it to get the most out of it. This is the same reason that God gives us His law. Scripture provides us with numerous examples of God's wisdom, instructions that may seem to us as if they make no sense, but if we follow them, they keep us from a lot of the evil and trouble that would otherwise come our way. 
So as you go through the next week, remember what we've learned from Adam and Eve today. We can't trust our own judgment in deciding right and wrong, but we can trust God's judgment. To obey His commands is always in our best interest. I want to leave you with the challenge of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. At some point, you're going to find yourself in the same situation as Adam and Eve. God has said, do it this way. But Satan is whispering in your ear, my way will be much better. You'll face a decision. Will you handle it in the way that God commands, or will you do what you want to do instead? Remember Adam and Eve as they walk away from the garden, and trust God. You won't regret it. Thank you for that message, John Mills. This has been uh, Jolton Church of the Nazarene, and I hope you all have a blessed day.